Leo, what are you doing? I'm bowling. No, snowshoeing in the Alps. I'm trying to sleep, Mr. Ricky. It's still dark out. Another spring training is upon us, Leo, in Panama. I need to know your attitude towards Jackie Robinson. I don't got an attitude toward him. Eight times in the Bible, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's uh, one of God's most repeated commands. Well, I don't know much about the Bible. But I didn't go to school just to eat my lunch either. I'll play an elephant if he can help us win. And to make room for him, I'll send my own brother home if he's not as good. Well, what are you going to do with me? Well, we're playing for money here, Mr. Ricky. Winning is the only thing that matters. Is he a nice guy? Well, if by nice you mean soft, no. No, not particularly. Good. He can't afford to be. Nice guys finish last. Not about nice girls. So you have no objection to him? None whatsoever. Can I go back to sleep now? Yes. All right. Oh, and Leo. What? The Bible has a thing or two to say about adultery as well. I'm sure it's got a lot to say about a lot. Good night. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome all of you in from my most ardent and loyal seamhead to the Virgin, stumbling onto the show for the very first time. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. You'll never receive a bill for this content. All I ask in return is that you share, follow, and download. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or you can always jump on uh, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to listen to any and, well, all of my shows and my vault of archives that I have over there. So, if you're an Apple or a Spotify user, please uh, remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I skirt. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anybody else. Facts. You can find the show on Twitter. 
at back underscore K underscore podcast. If you want to email the show, that's backwardskpod at gmail.com. And when I'm on Facebook or YouTube, it's at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Uh, I always seem to you know hang out under those banners there. So it's been a wild, uh, you know, whirlwind past month on here with the All-Star Game show and then the interview with baseball artist Greg Kreinler. And last week, my dear friend Michael Franks from Central Pennsylvania, he actually comes down to the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex. He hung out with me in God's Country, Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Hung out with the Snake for a couple of days. Uh, he did the 1979 We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates show with me. And... I'm a little late getting around to the mail on it, but from what I saw, it appears to have gone over very well. So I want to thank you, the audience, for the response. And of course, I want to thank my boy Mikey for coming down here to the complex to kick it with me while I talk about his beloved Buckos. And I really enjoyed it. I, usually, I'm a solo act, and really that's because, you know, look, at the end of the day, I can't expect anyone to invest in these shows the way I do. I know what I put into pulling off just one show, you know, in a week. And it's a lot of work. I've had people in good conscience try to put in work with me on the show, but they usually just fall off. So the only person I know I can ever fully trust to put in the work to pull this off every single week, you know, what's De La Soul, me, myself, and I, baby. And with that being said... The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, it's, it's huge. It's all around the world. Like, those 1979 Pirates, I've amassed quite a family of seamheads myself. And I'm very interactive with my audience. So, if any of you ever decide to vacation here at lovely PI, or even, like, Myrtle or Surfside Beach, hit the snake up with a heads up, and I'll get you a pass, come on to the complex, do a show with me, and that's an open invite to my most loyal and ardent, and, you know, y'all know who you are. So, again, I want to thank my boy Mikey Franks. I love you, bro, and that was fun. Now, I'm ready to get this train rolling again. The catcher is coming down, so let's dig right into this week's topic, uh, which is the Mahatma Branch Ricky. And if you're a loyal listener, I've opined many times on here about the baseball genius mind of Mr. Ricky. In my opinion, he is unquestionably the greatest GM in the history of baseball, and it's not even close. I spoke about his contributions on the very first show on Backwards K-Pod when I covered the iconic Roberto Clemente. And I also brushed over him as the architect of the St. Louis Cardinals Gas House Gang of the early 1930s. If you haven't heard those shows, I highly recommend you hit the archives on your podcast platforms or visit diamondsnakejake.podby.com to singularly understand his impact on just the pirates and the cards. But this today we're going to cover the whole span of his career. In a career that pretty much span decades and generations. And with the constantly evolving nature of baseball, Branch Rickey first and foremost was an innovative mind. He was a staunch, conservative, and God-fearing man who refused to participate in Sunday games as a player or a manager. He invented the modern farm system 
and the batting helmet. He was a pioneer and a proponent uh, for pushing the game into new markets. And of course, he is most notably known for bringing Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947, smashing the racist color line. And he's been called a man of strange complexities, as well as contradictions. Many writers in New York tagged him El Chipo after Mr. Ricky dumped a number of Dodgers, kind of like these older and better known players, soon after taking over in Brooklyn. Politically, socially conservative, he preached as a young man on the temperance circuit, and he would regularly rail against communist, communism, liberal politicians while he was on his pulpit. He preached honor, courage, and honesty. But many of his rivals, they considered him devious, always scheming for position, never afraid to undermine NL presidents and baseball commissioners. He was articulate, smart. His natural element was the pulpit. He could break, you know, situations down. He could speak with such great pontifical oratory skills that he could make reading the box scores about a stirring as listening to Dr. King speak about his dream. Many players would stumble out of Mr. Ricky's office during contract negotiations, woozy from the verbal jabs they encountered, and wondering to themselves, uh, how the hell did he convince me to accept this deal? He was a little absent-minded, as many geniuses are prone to be sometimes. He would often mistakenly toss half-lit matches in the trash can. He met Jane Moulton when he was 12. He proposed to her a hundred times, and she finally said yes when he was 24. They had five daughters, and the girl had a family secret code. Uh, when they placed their finger next to their nose, that meant that the old man was talking way too much. And whenever the girls gave him that code, he would accept his defeat and be quiet. And he would bring Jackie to the majors and tell stories of being deeply moved when a black player he coached in college tried to scrub the color from his skin to escape the racist vitriol coming from the stands and his opponents. But he could also relate to dialect jokes. He made anti-Catholic remarks at a dinner, as well as some harsh anti-Semitic comments about a possible Dodgers investor. And like I said in the beginning, strange complexity and contradiction. Wesley Branch Rickey was born December 20th, 1881 in Seattle County in South Central Ohio to a farming family led by his parents, Franklin and Emily Rickey. Uh, he had an older brother, Orlo, and a younger brother named Frank. Branch's first name, Wesley, was in honor of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, as the Rickies lived in a pious Methodist household. Mr. Rickey finished grade school in Lucasville, Ohio, but the family farm was now demanding his attention, and with the help of a retired educator, Branch educated himself enough to become a teacher at a local grade school, saving the money for college. And eventually he would work his way into Wesleyan University. And for the next decade, Mr. Ricky's life was like this hodgepodge of academics, sports, and eventually coaching. 
while attending Wesleyan, he played football, baseball, and he actually went pro during his time to pay for his studies. In 1902, he begins a semi-pro baseball career, and he also coached the university's team a spring later. During that summer of 1902, he played minor league ball in Indiana, Iowa, and Texas before having his contract purchased by the Cincinnati Reds near the end of the season. And for the next three years, uh, Mr. Ricky played in the majors, and he earned a reputation as a defensively marginal catcher, no stick, uh, a man of convictions, if not a little bit of an odd bird for never playing on Sundays. His moral compass would more than once confuse and frustrate the Reds, so his refusal to play on Sundays, they kind of angered the Cincinnati manager, uh, Joe Kelly. So much so that he released them, sent them back to Dallas, and that was before he even appeared in a league game. That winter, he would move to Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, where he served as the football and baseball coach. Now, that winter, the Chicago White Sox would purchase Mr. Ricky's contract, but they quickly sent him to the St. Louis Browns when they realized they could not afford a catcher who took Sundays off and who would not report until his duties as a college coach were completed. He would make his Major League Baseball debut on June 16, 1905, it would be his one and only appearance at the show in 05 as his mother became ill and he returned home to Lucasville, Ohio to take care of her. When she recovered, Mr. Ricky went back to Dallas before heading to Allegheny for another year of coaching football. And it was around this time that he became disillusioned with the money and the corruption in college football then and he left before the season began. That's very interesting. Brantz was back with the Browns in 1906. And he had a career year. He batted 284 in 65 games. The left-handed swinging Ricky had his first Major League Baseball hit on April 23, 1906. A single off of Tigers hurler Ed Killian at Sportsman's Park. By the end of the summer, Mr. Ricky returned to Ohio Wesleyan to heal his hurting arm do a little bit of coaching, and complete the courses that he needed to enter law school. During the off-seasons, the Browns shipped him off to the New York Yankees, but his ailing arm had never fully recovered, and it was painfully obvious to notice he could not throw the ball with any real velocity anymore. On Je- uh, June 28, 1907, the Washington Senators, they stole 13 consecutive bases against him in a game. By the end of the game, Ricky stopped bothering to even throw down to the attempted base. 13 stolen bases given up in a game. It's still an all-time record more than 100 years later. Google that shit. His average fell to 182 in 52 games. He would make two more appearances for the Browns in 1914, but ostensibly his career was over. And I wouldn't be doing my due diligence here at Backwards K-Pod, uh, 
if I didn't give you Branch Rickey's final MLB stats. He played for four years for the St. Louis Browns and the New York Yankees. 120 career games and a .6 war. 381 plate appearances, 82 hits, three home runs. And the funny thing about that is he hit, uh, he had like a career day where like he hit two home runs against the Yankees as a St. Louis Brown. I uh, drove in like six runs that day. One was a three run shot. One was an in a park home run. He also had a, another hit early in the day. It was like the career day for him. It all came together and it was against the Yankees. And you wonder, you know, did the Yank, did that game against the Yankees play into their psyche when they went after that kid? So he had three career home runs and two of them were against the Yankees the year before. Uh, they shipped him to the Yankees. He had a slash of 239, 304, 324, a 628 OPS, and a 98 OPS plus. Primarily a catcher, of course, you know, smartest guy out there. But he also played a little uh, first base, center field, and right field. And that's the uh, final Branch rookie stat line as a player. After marrying his teenage sweetheart Jane in Lucasville in 1906, he began to really bust his home to uh, provide by taking on a slew of jobs. He was now the athletic director for Wesleyan while also coaching football, basketball, and baseball. He began teaching beginners law classes even while still attending law classes himself. In 1908, Branch Rickey threw all of his support behind William H. Taft's presidential campaign. But by the end of the year, Mr. Rickey is diagnosed with tuberculosis, the biggest medical killer of its day. So he spends much of 1909 in a sanitarium in upstate New York before going to the University of Michigan for the first semester of his freshman year. In 1911, he's almost 30 years old now. He graduates from law school, and he decides he's going to open his practice in Boise, Idaho. And he quickly realizes, um, this sucks. I got one client, he doesn't even want to have a lawyer, and maybe this law thing, it really ain't my calling card life. He was bored AF, and he considered himself a failure. However, the impressions that he made as a coach and a player, that would be a saving grace. Robert Hedges, the owner of the St. Louis Browns, he was always impressed with Mr. Rickey's intelligent and well-articulated presentations when he was a player. After two winners in Boise, you know, Branch, he's more than thrilled to have the opportunity to meet Hedges for a meeting in Salt Lake City, Utah, for a possible job with the Browns. He, uh, he borrows the train fare from Hedges, and this is pretty much the beginning of his half-century life in professional baseball. His original role with the team, it was kind of like this roving scout slash GM, but they didn't have GMs back then. And with the help of full-time scout Charlie Barrett, they would track ballplayers from the Midwest down to the South, and in the winter of 1912, Barrett 
and the Mahatma, they produced a list of 105 players who were scouted and eligible to be Browns. And 30 of those 105 players would eventually be drafted by St. Louis. By mid-1913, Ricky is the manager, and he is often seen teaching through lectures. Heart-to-heart, talks and drills. He's also one of the first people to incorporate metrics. Long before anyone knew what metrics was, he had this lifelong fascination with statistical analysis. And he would not only literally invent the on-base percentage, but he actually hired a young man to sit behind home plate and keep track of total bases. The team got better in 1914, but fell off again in 1915. Under the auspice that Mr. Ricky, you know, he's just, he's too intellectual in dealing with his players. Their minds are there, but they they gotta wake up. And that winter, Hedges sold the Browns to Phil Ball after already handling uh, Mr. Ricky a long-term contract. And Ball, however, this uh, Phil Ball, he's not a fan of the Bible thumping or Ricky's approach to the game. So he replaces him with Fielder Jones as the manager. And Mahatma would chafe in his new scouting role. In 1917, a new St. Louis NL team was breaking ground and they encouraged Ball to let the Mahatma out of his contract. So he could come and be the president of the city's newest baseball team, the St. Louis Cardinals. And for the most part, right, we all look at the Cardinals as this organization that has, you know, their shit together. More seasons than not, right? However, in the team's early inception, they were they were not a dream job at all, as this new ownership group was immensely undercapitalized. Mr. Ricky and manager Miller Miller Huggins, they rarely saw eye to eye on the theoretical approach to the game. In 1918, Huggins would be lured away by the Yankees, and Mahatma would replace him with Jack Hendricks. In August of 1918, Mr. Ricky joins the Army Chemical Corps, this brand new field in the U.S. military. He was commissioned a major, and he joined a unit, get this, with Captains Christy Mathewson and Tyrus Raymond Cobb. And this unit supported a number of attacks on the Germans. Now, butterfly effect moment here, we haven't done one of these for a while. How would, like, history change things? I mean, what if one of those dudes died? And if you remember, in my History of the Braves podcast... Matthewson was actually gassed uh, in World War II, and he would eventually die due to complications from it. And that whole story is in my History of the Braves podcast. That's available on all platforms, in my Vault of Archives, at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. 
Mr. Ricky, he had this mediocre record as a cards manager. The first three years, the team increased their win total every year, peaking at third place in 1921, only to see the team fall off precipitously from fourth to fifth to sixth place. And finally, they replaced him in 1925. Humiliated and crushed, he decided against retiring, and he decides to remain on as the team's uh, GM, but they're, it's still not called a GM, though. The front office, let's put it that way. For those who question Mr. Ricky's ability to be a big league manager, their opinions were kind of vindicated when Rogers Hornsby led the Redbirds to the 1926 pennant. And while many of those same people discounted him as a manager, there was no disputing his abilities in the front office and he practically created the position of GM as we understand it today. His first great innovation was the invention of the farm system. With, co- with the cards fighting for the NL lives, Ricky realized that the birds, they're at a disadvantage. They're trying to obtain these players of merit from the minors. Uh, all these other clubs would simply swoop in and outbid them. And in the end, Branch was always stuck taking what was left in the cupboard. And sometimes there was nothing left in the said cupboard. So he would take over a Houston club in 1924. The Cubs then began to create a network chain of affiliate clubs, enabling, enabling them to be able to sign players cheap. And sell good players to other teams and keep the great ones for the Cardinals. And Branch Branch Rickey once said, and look, I would listen to anything he says, but, you know, pay attention. He said, I do not feel like the farm system we established was a result of incentive genius. We did it to meet a question of supply and demand of young ballplayers, end quote. And he's being modest for sure. But it was so ingenious that eventually every club would follow his lead and his farm system still exists to this day. When I sit in the minor league park nowadays, I often wonder what would Branch think about the evolution of the farm system as it is presented today. I mean, it's on a whole other level from when I was a kid. Let alone when he invented it. And the Mahatma, he was approved, cold, calculated judge of talent. He was never a sentimentalist prone to holding on to aging players who may have produced greatly in the team's post-success or uh, past success. He always preached it's better to get rid of a guy a year too early than a year too late. He created the concept of the anesthetic ball player. By determining which ones were good enough to be major leaguers, but not quite good enough to produce a world title or a pennant. And then trading those anesthetic players and fading stars to fill holes that the farm system cannot. In the minors, the Mahatma was an innovator. Not just in creating the system, but his approach to teaching baseball. It was a more uh, progressive experience than anywhere else at any other time. He had Sam uh, Sam Pitts to teach sliding drills, 
I mean, where do you think that Pepper Martin and Frankie Frisch learned all those crazy hook slides? He had a set of strings that hung above the plate to define the strike zone. They had batting tees and, you know, plenty of like this chalk talk baseball instruction. His player evaluation skills are off the chain. They built the Cardinals machine that dominated the National League, winning nine NL pennants and six World Series titles between 1926 and 1946. And, of course, that would include the legendary Gas House Gang of 1933, and I covered that extensively here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And really, it's one of the most fascinating teams in baseball history. If you haven't heard that, you got to go check it out. In his public life, uh, Mahatma's reputation as a shrewd executive and motivational speaker began to grow. He was never afraid to tie his conservative religious values to his baseball success. He befriended many political figures of his day. Usually conservative Republicans. He was asked to run for governor of Missouri. And many touted him as Thomas Dewey's successor as the governor of New York if Dewey were to win the presidential election over Harry S. Truman, which of course we know he did not. By late 1942, Mr. Ricky and the Cards owner Sam Breeden, they had a strained relationship. The two were constantly arguing over uh, Ricky's bonus payments and Breeden's dismissal of some of his top scouts. Ricky, who had always been apprehensive about moving out of his St. Louis comfort zone, he had had enough. And in 1942, the Dodgers began to woo him to leave the Show Me State. On October 29, 1942, Branch Ricky was announced as the Dodgers GM, and he was also introduced to 39-year-old lawyer and owner Walter O'Malley. And I told you in the beginning, the writers in New York, they called him out cheapo. And that first offseason was the reason why. While the fans and reporters in New York saw the 1941 and 42 teams as a pennant winner and a second place team, uh, Ricky saw the roster uh, through a different lens. He saw them as one that is aging. And they're about to absorb some losses because of World War II. And in one of the first true fire sale rebuilds, Mr. Ricky disposed of his perceived dead weight judiciously and without mercy, creating angst for the Flatbush faithful. In the post-World War II era, Ricky was forced to use pre-war players like Dixie Walker, Pee Wee Reese, uh, Hugh Casey, while ingratiating them with players in his developmental program. This demanded that Mr. Ricky unleash his next innovation in baseball, the spring training complex. With over 700 players under contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers, they found themselves in need of uh, a large facility to ensure uniform training and proper analysis of all their prospects. In 1947, Mr. Ricky struck a deal with the town of Vero Beach, Florida for the use of their former naval air base located there. 
And using like this complex system of colors and numbers, each prospect was sorted, trained, analyzed, graded, and eventually assigned to their proper form team. And this is all according to the Mr. Ricky standard. The Vero Beach facility became a template model for the rest of the league, but his next step would take him from being this talented baseball exec to the very first face on the mythical GM Rushmore. His decision to pursue a black player came to him fairly soon after joining the Brooklyn organization. In 1943, he was given approval by the Dodgers Board of Directors to go find that right man. His pursuit of, the, uh, pursuit of the first black player to break the color line was your typical branch Ricky combination of religious beliefs, his desire to make money, win, draw fans, and not to be forgotten is his ability to see baseball in the same context as, you know, like American society. The decision to make Jackie Robinson the first, it was pragmatic, strategical move by Ricky. Mr. Ricky was looking not just for the best baseball talent, but for the best combination of on-field talent, maturity, and intelligence. He chose him because he was a four-sports superstar at UCLA, competing frequently and freely against and with some of the best white athletes in the country. He chose him because Jackie was fiercely opposed to segregation. He even beat a U.S. Army court-martial in Fort Hood, Texas. When long before Rosa Parks, he refused to move to the back of the bus in, in, the, in the heart of Jim Crow country. And Ricky respected Jackie's principles. And last but not least, Jackie was a Methodist, just like him. And he's going to need that in his battle ahead. He warned Jackie what was to come. And he asked him, what are you going to do? Are you going to ruin my plans? Mr. Ricky, what's this about? baseball, Jackie. I see you starting in spring with our affiliate in Montreal. If you make it there, try it down here with the Dodgers. With the white Brooklyn Dodgers. I'll pay you $600 a month. $3,500 bonus when you sign the contract. that agreeable? Yes, that's fine. There's one condition. I know you can hit behind the runner, that you can read a pitch. One question is, can you control your temper? My temper? Yes, your temper. What are you, deaf? A black man in white baseball. <laughs> can you imagine the reaction? The vitriol? 
Dodgers check into a hotel, a, a decent, good hotel. You're worn out from the road. Some clerk won't give you the pen to sign in with. We got no room for you, boy. Not even down in the coal bin where you belong. Team stops at a restaurant. Waiter won't take your order. Didn't you see the sign on the door? No niggers allowed. What are you going to do then? Fight him? Ruin all my plans? Answer me, you black son of a bitch! You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse and they'll, they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say the Negro lost his temper. That the Negro does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. We win if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. Like our Savior, you gotta have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? too much into Jackie as you know he's going to be a standalone show in the future here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ball players and their stories and we're definitely going to collect the Jackie Robinson story and I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that room when that happened but again we're going to talk more about that in a singularly Jackie Robinson show. But amid much abuse, turmoil, empathy, fanfare, and success, Robinson was named baseball's first rookie of the year. He became extremely popular even though he was jeered by his opponents. And his success was the crowning achievement of Mr. Ricky's illustrious career. The Dodgers would lose the World Series that year to the Yankees, but in 1955, they would finally beat their rivals for the chip. Jackie finished his career with six All-Star Game appearances, and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. Meanwhile, Mr. Ricky, he had worn out a stay in Brooklyn. Uh, mostly, you know, there was some, some friction with his investment partners. So he put steps in motion that would secure Walter O'Malley as the primary owner and sole controller of the Dodgers while he dipped out and moved to the front office of the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates were this perennial last place unit. 
On June 4th, 1953, Mr. Mr. Ricky asserts his power and he trades fan favorite Ralph Kiner to the Cubs, telling the young slugger, son, we could have finished last without you. However, he began to do, to do what the Mahatma does. He started to develop and acquire some game-changing young talent. Bob Fran and Roy Face, they joined Vern Law in 1951 and in 1953 to form like this core of pirates here. Mr. Ricky signs uh, first base Dick Stewart and this rangy shortstop Dick Grote, as well as second baseman Bill Mazeroski. And during that offseason, Ricky made the greatest Rule 5 draft pick ever in the history of baseball when he stole the great one, Roberto Clemente, from the Los Angeles Dodgers. A story that I told on the very first Backwards K-Pod show, the Roberto Clemente show, it really is an amazing story. That you may not have heard, and I highly suggest that you check that out. That story is incredible. How Branch Ricky facilitated the move of, you know, basically stealing Clemente from the Dodgers. By early 1960, this rebuild, it pays off when the Buccos shocked the New York Yankees with a walk-off Mazeroski dong in the World Series. And Roberto Clemente, you know, he was on that team, and he would also pay off, leading the Pirates to the 71 upset of the highly favored Baltimore Orioles. So long after he was gone, the effects of what he did with that team was felt. And for two years, Mahatma lived a secluded life, but then he jumped at the chance to return to the cards as a senior consultant. However, there was tensions in the front office, as then General Bing Devine, he felt threatened by Ricky's presence. And it didn't end well for Ricky, as he was let go after the Cards won the 1964 World Series. He died on December 9, 1965. He was buried in Rushtown, Ohio, just across the Seota River from Lucasville. His wife Jane, she died six years later, and she's buried next to him. Hello, Leo. What are you doing? I'm bowling. No, snowshoeing in the Alps. I'm trying to sleep, Mr. Ricky. It's still dark out. Another spring training is upon us, Leo, in Panama. I need to know your attitude towards Jackie Robinson. Actually, that's my fault. I played the totally wrong sound, but here we go. Let's try this one right here. You already heard that one. You've had a hell of a hair across your ass over this for a long time, and I'd like to know what it is you think you're trying to prove. You think God likes baseball, Herb? What? What the hell is that supposed to mean? It means someday you're going to meet God, and when he inquires as why you didn't take the field against Robinson in Philadelphia, and you answer that it's because he was a Negro, it may not be a sufficient reply. <laughs> And I love that soundbite. And look, it's kind of funny. I made that mistake right, th- right, right there. But uh, you know, I'm not going to edit that out. I don't edit anything on here. It is one shot. Boom! I just do it from the top. If I make a mistake, I think it's kind of fascinating that I pushed the wrong button right there. But hey, I may be a little goofy when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, I think we're going to end it right there. That my Seamhead Army is the story of the greatest GM in baseball history. 
Mr. Branch Ricky. I want to thank all y'all for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed presenting it to you. There are a ton of great articles about Branch Ricky's life. You can use your Google machine, and that's a rabbit hole that's going to get you for a couple hours there. Uh, I used the clips from the movie 42 where Harrison Ford, I mean, he killed the role of Mr. Ricky. Uh, another good movie about uh, Branch Ricky and Jackie Robinson, I would suggest, is The Soul of the Game. It's a movie back in the 90s with Mario Von Peebles. Van Peebles, that's a very good movie. Um, but like I said, I'll... I did use some of the clips from the movie 42. I thought Harrison Ford was awesome in that role. Uh, There's also a book written by Mr. Ricky. You should check it out. It's called The American Diamond, a documentary of the game of baseball. It's probably the closest thing to an autobiography that Mr. Ricky would ever do. And there you have it, folks. Plenty of stuff to keep you occupied if you Google uh, Branch Ricky. Please remember to share, follow, subscribe, and download. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or go on over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Next week, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. We're going to take this son of a bitch international. Next week, we will be talking baseball in the Netherlands. We got the WBC coming soon, and the Dutch have proven they belong on the World Baseball stage. But hey, that's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the deck.